You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. I'm excited to uh, introduce our guest for today. It is Sandra Van Upstel, uh, who is a second-generation Latina and the co-founder and executive director of Chasing Justice. She lives on the west side of Chicago with her husband and two boys. She's a liturgist, an activist, passionate about reimagining worship that mobilizes for reconciliation and justice. In her 15 years with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, Sandra has mobilized thousands of college students for God's mission of reconciliation and justice. She has served as director of worship for the Urbana Missions Conference. Uh, she's executive pastor for Grace and Peace Community, among other leadership roles. Sandra's leads and preaches on topics such as poverty, racial identity, and global mission. Uh, Sandra holds a Master's of Divinity from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. She's been published in multiple journals and authored many books, including Still Evangelical, The Mission of Worship, and The Next Worship. And there's a rumor that she's working on another book uh, within an Enneagram series. And word is that she might be an Enneagram 8, but we'll have to find out about that. (laughs) Uh, Welcome to the show, Sandra. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're excited to have you on. Sandra, um, I was saying uh, just before we started to record that the talk you gave when we were speaking together in South Africa, I refer to all the time, like um, uh, your voice and how it lifted up so many voices. And um, Drew, I don't know if you know this, but Sandra has a beautiful singing voice. Uh. And the way that you lifted up songs from around the world I was in tears. I looked around. Everybody else was in tears. Um, like your your ministry and the importance you place on um, listening to the church everywhere, not just a few ministries um, uh, in just a, a few places, is beautiful and important and prophetic. And that's on top of everything else that you do. And uh, we've just had this moment where our dear friend Danielle uh, Mayfield was seen holding Amos uh five um, uh, sign uh, in, in Portland. And while people are, are talking about that, we've got time with you. And I can think of nothing better than to spend time uh, with you around this. What particular part of Amos would you like to lift up as we, as we start and um, ask about your story and then explore this text with you? Well, I would like to explore the whole book of Amos, but we don't have time for that. So um, (laughs) I think in particular, um, there are calls that Amos makes um, to God's people and calls that God makes through Amos to his, to God's people. And so I would like to um, park myself in Amos chapter five uh, and a few Mm. of the verses 14 and on. And then um, you'll hear the echoes of things Amos says in the first uh, four chapters as well. Right. So here's, Amos. <laughs> so here's Amos chapter five, um, starting at verse 14, and I'll skip over some and, and land again. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, 
maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring me choice offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is God Almighty. Mm. Right now. All right. What a text. (laughs) What a text. (laughs) Oh, Amos. So, Sandra, one of the things that we like to uh, explore is just to get to know people's story. And so um, even way before we, you know, jump into this text and just feel the fire uh, of what it has to say to us today, I'm curious about your own story and when you remember first encountering uh, the Bible. I encountered the Bible um, in my home. Uh, I can't remember a time where the Bible was not on uh, the kitchen table in the morning when I would come to the kitchen for breakfast. My father always had the Bible open. And it was like one of those old school white Bibles with the gold rim and the, the, the gold. Rims. Like, oh, yeah. yeah. It, was like, oh, yeah. it was like King James, you know, like the old school. Yep. And I, yep. I want to say that he found it, he bought it at like a, it wasn't like a you know precious family Bible or anything. He like got it at a garage sale for like a quarter or something. But um, I, the Lord arrested him with scripture. And so he would just read it and read it and read it. And to this day, um, my father actually um, has, has dementia. And so he's with us, but not really with us. But to this day, you see that Bible on the corner of the kitchen table mm. um, and it just hasn't moved there. So um, I can always remember the presence of, God's written word in our household. Um, I grew up in a family um, of, uh, my parents are immigrants from Latin America. And so they grew up in a very uh, faithful Catholic tradition. And so we were always surrounded by God's word in song and in liturgy and um, that big white Bible with the gold, <laughs> with the gold trim. <laughs> yeah. So and so that's, those- that's what I can remember. Huh. And those memories, we're, we're so aware, particularly as we have this uh, discipline, Drew and I, of um, asking these questions with people, that um, people's relationship with um, that Bible, whether it be bound in uh, white leather and gold trim or otherwise, is often complex. If, if you were to name for yourself, was your experience of um, the text of Scripture something that was oppressive or liberating? How would you describe that journey with the texts themselves? My experience with scripture has always been uh, frustrating 
and liberating at the same time. You know, I think um, part of it is that I learned to study scripture. I learned to read scripture on my own. So I wasn't having it read to me or taught to me that those, those memories are not very strong for me. What Mm. is strong for me is the reading of God's word. So having my father read God's word, hearing God's word read in liturgy. Um, I don't really remember what the priest or the pastor said a lot growing up, but I do remember the word of God being read. And so um, I think that my like dominant feeling around scripture is that I want to understand it. I want to know it. And I feel like I can, um, and I have the tools to reflect and to, to kind of be in scripture and to study scripture. Um, so I think that was formed not only from my experience as a young child, but also my experience in campus ministry, because I was told by these young students that were 18 and 19 years old that we could understand what God was saying in God's word by actually looking at it and understanding the context and studying it. And so I learned to do inductive manuscript study, Bible study through InterVarsity. And I began to just search scripture. And then I was like, wow, this is, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. And then, you know, further down the line, as I came into ministry, I was taught to actually do the same thing, like exegete scripture, look at scripture, understand historical context, get dictionaries, you know, like look it up. And so my relationship with scripture actually hasn't been curated through someone else. I mean, yes, I've been in the church. Yes, I've heard pastors preach in the churches I've been in, but I don't think my relationship with scripture is actually mediated by anyone else. It's, it's, it's explored in community and in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Um, but my dominant feeling towards scripture is, you know, it's given to us as a community of believers and the process of exploring the truth is led by the Holy spirit. And that's what we do in scripture. So I don't have a lot of negative feelings around the the Bible itself. Mm. I I have lots of negative feelings about theology and the study of the Bible, but not scripture itself. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing how many of our friends uh, that intervarsity experience has been important. Lisa Sharon Harper, the same thing. She just talked yeah, very about similar thing, right? How radical it was for her to be given permission um, to actually have a way of working through the text um, uh, uh, critically, intelligently, with intellectual honesty. Um, yeah, that's that's amazing that that permission was given, and it sounds like it was so empowering for so many. Yeah, empowering and infuriating because then there's things you don't know. So you have to keep looking it up and asking questions and getting around. I think for me, it only grew as my world grew. You know, as I went from 19 years old, you know, in my 20s and my 30s, as my understanding of the world grew, as my questions about the world grew, as my um, kind of contact with the brokenness of the world grew as my connections to the global church grew every season that I've had, it's, it's brought me kind of a new, a fresh desire to understand what is God's story and what is our story in God's story. Um, and then mm-hmm. I just kind of try to like shut off or ignore all the nonsense that people try to bring to scripture through their, you know, biases and their lenses. Um, is there nonsense? Uh, <laughs> what I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh. Uh, but yeah, I would say because my love for scripture really started 
um, and my contact with scripture really started by having it just read over me versus like it, it wasn't taught to me. You know, I didn't grow up in like VBS or kids church or anything like that. We didn't have that. So it was just kind of read over us and sung over us. Mm -hmm. And then we, you know, you receive it as you receive it. And then by the time I was in college, it was like, okay, well, now pick up the Bible and what does it say? And I'm like, I don't know. What does it say? You know, like, and then by the time like second year in, in college, I was leading a Bible study. I was like, what am I doing? I don't even know what I'm doing here. <laughs> like, um, and I led a, a, a small group on the Sermon on the, a Sermon on the Mount. And uh, yeah, I totally didn't know what I was doing, but you know, 20 people were coming to my, to my dorm room or my apartment and like reading scripture with me. And I was trying to figure it out. <laughs> so. Wow. That's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I think of you as like, when I hear your name, I think worship and justice, right? I mean, like, that's just what comes to mind. I'm, just, um, But I'm curious, like, so if, as you're talking about experiencing scripture in that way, like, has, like, is that something that has been newer for you? Or is that like, from the moment that you were doing these Bible studies, were you seeing these connections on like, that scripture is just orienting you towards a God of justice or like, I'm just kind of curious about that, that development in your own mm-hmm. life as you're kind of diving into the scriptures. Oh yeah. No, not totally. Not at all. It wasn't connected at all for me. Like I, yeah. I was, I was just, you know, Jesus is my personal friend, you know, yeah. like Jesus yeah. loves me and I'm 13 and I was so yeah. awkward. And then like yeah. uh, Jesus loves me, even though I'm making all these mistakes in high school and just doing the wrong thing, hanging out with the wrong people. They're like it's all that kind of, you know, I had that. I mean, I, I, I was, <laughs> I was a teenager, you know, like I, I was, and I was figuring myself out in my twenties. I knew that there was something different and distinct about the fragrance of Jesus. I just didn't mm. know what it was. Mm. And so when I actually, when I came on staff with the university, I was at Northwestern university and I was doing this like paper. We have to do that's like your philosophy of ministry. And I was like, Oh my gosh, what do you, what is that? You know, I studied music business. I don't know what a philosophy of ministry is. And um, I was talking with my mentor, Alan Wakabayashi, and he started, he was like a huge uh, Dallas Willard N.T. Wright fan. I mean, he was just like messing with my brain all the time. Like, you know, Jesus, and I was an evangelist. So I was like, you know, just save the souls, give people the gospel, you know? And he's like, well, what if God, what if God wants to transform this whole university? I'm like, what do you mean by that? You know, well, what if Jesus doesn't just want to like take and save the people from the earth? What if Jesus wants to transform the earth? And I was like, What? What do you mean by that? You know, and, and, and so this journey started for me of really understanding. I think it was actually a returning to or reclaiming some of my Catholic roots of yeah. like, yep. the, you know, kind of common grace and, and, and Jesus for the common good and a transformation of the world and Jesus coming back, not just so that Jesus, not just saving us so that one day we could be like, you know, lifted up into heaven, but that heaven actually would come down to earth as the Lord's prayer says. Um, and so he started messing with me and I was like, no, I think it's like, I remember telling him, I was like, I think it's like 90% about people, just like 90% about people's souls and like 10% about everything else. <laughs> I promise you I wrote that in the paper too. And that began a, a theological journey for me. It became an experiential journey. And actually it was, uh, I think it brought wholeness to my being, yeah. like to myself and my identity, because I had grown up in a family that had experienced an incredible amount of injustice. Yeah. I had been a child who had just learned to speak English um, in her white suburban experience after moving from the city. And I knew that people were racist. 
I yeah. knew that people thought I, we, we were second class. I knew that there was pain in the world. I, I saw poverty in my own family because we had all mm. kinds of socioeconomic realities in our family, um, both in the U.S. and in Colombia and Argentina, both of them. Mm. So I was like, I'm not like, I know there's racism. I know these things exist, but I couldn't figure out how to piece it together with my faith in Jesus. And the minute that Alan said that to me, I, I began this kind of integration back to understanding that my longing for things to be right in the world that I used to have as an eight-year-old, that my sense that my indignation uh, when I saw something that was wrong and my like propensity to get in trouble for speaking up against those things was actually a, 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 a Christian thing. Um, it was, That's it was right. a Jesus thing and that God had made me and wired me that way to, to you know, to make a difference and, and to, to change the world because Jesus wanted to change the world. This is, not how, this is not what Jesus wanted for the world. And so it was in that time in my early 20s that I began to piece together and I would say really reclaim the things that were given to me in my childhood through my conversations with my abuelita, with my mm. you know family members, with my Catholic roots, all those things of like understanding that Jesus did not come to the earth so that we could have like a pipeline to escape to heaven someday, that that was an inauguration of a kingdom that was here, but not yet. Mm -hmm. And so that, that began to change the way that I did ministry on campus, the way that I spent my finances, the way that I use my time outside of, you know, my ministry. Um, and so it changed everything for me. So, and it was an encounter with the person of Jesus in the gospel of Luke. Mm. Luke changed everything for, and now I teach Luke to freshmen. So I'm like, yes, y'all need to know Luke. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that's good. That's good. So um, we believe everybody has a gift, right. That we can like offer others. And so thinking about all that you've shared about your upbringing, your life, the journeys that you've gone, the ways that you've kind of come to know God, um, what from your experience provides a lens for interpreting the Bible that you might be able to gift to others? The first thing that comes to mind for me is that context matters. Mm -hmm. Context, place matters. So yeah. when we think about the Bible and we think about the people that are described in the Bible, we have to always be remembering that the stories in scripture are stories of communities of people, not of individuals, but of communities of, pe of people that were not in America, but in the Near East, you know, <laughs> communities of people what, that you were- you saying they're not all white, yeah, they're not all white. So, so knowing, knowing and placing and understanding that the stories in scripture are about community, about brown communities that were marginalized and vulnerable and oppressed and on the outside of social systems, and that God was a God that was always for them in their position of vulnerability and persecution and oppression, that changes how you read scripture. Completely right, yeah. changes how you read scripture. Yeah. So context matters in the, in the Bible itself. Like where, who are these people? What is their name? Where does their name come from? You know, so uh, let me give you an example. So a lot, a lot of times I hear people talk about like, oh, you know, the apostle Paul, he had this conversion. First, his name was Saul. And then he got converted. His name was Paul. And I'm like, no, that's actually not true. He had two names, y'all, because he was bicultural yep. and biracial right. and, and, and he had two, dual citizenship. So his yeah. name was both Saul and Paul. 
Right. In the same way that my name is both Sandra and Sandrita. It's the same, you know, mm-hmm. like, right. so, and many, many people that come from different countries and cultures are given two names. They have their like mm-hmm. American or Westernized name and their Korean name or their, right. you know, so we understand that. And so. And Sandra, do, do you know that that's literally part of my name, Shawl or, or Saul in English? Oh, um, really? So it, it's my mum's maiden name. So uh, Growing up in churches um, where people will find out my full name and they're like, well, why didn't they give you his Christian name? And I'm like, uh, because my mum's side of the family are Ashkenazi Jews and it's our name. Like it's, <laughs> And people are like, oh, you, you should change it um, to give a sense that Jesus got a hold of it. And I'm like, Jesus has got a hold of it. Yeah, Jesus had a hold of that from the beginning. So That's right. Um, so, you know, I think about like my, my, one of my sons, his name is Justo Alejandro. And his last name is Ostrowski because he's got his dad's Polish name. So I uh-huh. think about him and all that is his life as a as an Argentine, Colombian, Polish American, mm. with all, and then his brother who's biracial, black and white, raised by a Latina and a Pol. You know, it's just it's a craziness. And I think about like that that matters. So not only does scripture the context of scripture matters, but your context matters. Like where you find yourself, the place where your feet stand, the air that you breathe, the places that you, the community that you come from. So I, I always, when I introduce myself, I always tell people, I'm, my name is Sandra. I'm the daughter of two immigrants. My parents mm-hmm. came from Colombia and Argentina. They came to the, and, that, and then I tell my story or do my sermon or whatever. And the reason I do that is because I want them because of they might see me and say, oh, she's, I don't know what she's racially ambiguous kind of, you know, who knows. I want them to know exactly where I come from because mm. I want them to know that there is a story that's behind me. Amen. There is a people that is behind me. There are right. values that undergird me and that are foundationally mine, no matter what I look like to them or how they want to make me the same because it makes them comfortable. My parents had to go through things that their parents did not have to go through when they came to the U.S. They right. didn't have to go through those same things. And um, they had to find a way in a very scary land where people would not receive them, understand them, accept them, Um and so for me, when I come to scripture, it's not just the story of the people in scripture, but it's understanding my story in light of their story. And mm. if there are places I can identify with, and I'm like, wow, that bridge is so strong for me. I'm feeling that in the book of Esther, for example, in her story. So many reasons I identify with her. Um, and there are places where I'm like, I totally don't get that. And so this culture, this value, this circumstance in life is so far from mine that I need to, I need to actually fill in some gaps there. So I fully understand what's happening. That's why we get craziness around the story of Abraham, Sarah, and, and Hagar, for example, mm-hmm. like as yeah. if Hagar was in love with Abraham when, oh, that's not exactly the story, you know? That's so, right. So I think when we know the context of scripture, when we know our place and context um, and our narrative, we know that those things matter to how we study scripture. I think Justo Gonzalez um, talks about this very mm. um, ex- accessibly and brilliantly in the book Santa Biblia, where he talks at, looks at like looking at scripture through Hispanic eyes. And even though its focus is looking at um, Latina kind of hermeneutics and exegetical um, passages, exegetical word in those passages, he's really giving people an understanding that no one comes to scripture objectively. Mm. 
no one. And so therefore, mm -hmm. uh, you have to see what kind of bridge you're building between yourself and that, that story, that reality. And then if you're preaching in a cross-cultural context or in another context you're That's teaching, right. you have to build the bridge between you and the Bible and the people that are hearing it. And so, um, that's what I think I can, I, I think that has been the most profound thing for me. And that leads me to the other thing, which is that that's why diversity matters when you study scripture. Like there is no way that a fluent, educated white male in an air conditioned building is going to tell me what the book of Ruth is about. <laughs> talk about it. Go ahead and talk about it. <laughs> but when I sit down with my with my Latina sisters here in the neighborhood who have been through the journey of La Bestia and all those other ways of getting to this country, who have come with their children, who have, who have been in very, very vulnerable positions. When I ask them, what is it, what do you see in this passage? What do you see in this story? And they're able to tell me about the loving kindness of God and how that plays out in the life of these two very vulnerable women who are going to a place where they would not be received. And what it meant that God took care of them. Ruth is not a love story. Yeah. Again, it's not for women's ministries and women's retreats. Yeah. And I think that studying the book of Ruth with immigrant women or with refugee women in other countries right. around the world is profoundly transformational. And studying the book of Amos with incarcerated men is profoundly transformational. Oh, and so if I know that there's a place and a context of scripture, and I know that I have a place in a context, then I know that I need others' voices and eyes to understand fully um, who God is and what the Bible is about. So I am an advocate for studying scripture in community with people who are not like you socioeconomically, culturally, and racially. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's powerful. Sandra, that's so powerful. And I know there's another question I'm, I'm supposed to ask now, but I'm wondering if you'd indulge me because listening to you talk about um, uh, my story and their story in terms of your ancestors and the need to um, build bridges, I'm so aware uh, those of us, uh, particularly those of us um, who find it easier um, to hide our ancestors, we're always asked in terms of the Saul Paul um, uh, in, instead of, those being dual realities to step into one reality and actually cover up, hide, bury the other reality. When the bridge is so often asked um, of those of us um, with those stories, uh, when the bridge is actually to um, white evangelicalism, how, how do you maintain a faithfulness um, uh, to those who have gone before you uh, while in the pressure of places that want you to leave all that behind, um, particularly when you find yourself in the pulpit. Um, and uh, the, there are places where um, our lives can be surrounded by people seeking safety um, from desperate war-torn places in the world. And yet on a Sunday, there's pressure to translate to um, the the middle of our societies, which become the default setting. How do you navigate that both um, in your ministry, in the pulpit? Uh, and I ask you that question, particularly knowing that you've been involved in some exciting experiments to shake those things up. 
how do I do that my, with a lot of essential oils and uh, therapy appointments and <laughs> massage therapy, <laughs> bike rides, um, you know, um, I believe that that the Bible is um, accurate when it says that the truth shall set us free. Amen. So I am less concerned with people's comfort and more concerned mm. with people's freedom. Come on. I am just concerned for their freedom. And mm. so even in the, in the chapter that I wrote for Still Evangelical, uh, which, you know, was a composite, Lisa Sharon Harper, Sun Chan, a bunch of us wrote for it. Mm. Um, and uh, at kind of it was post-election asking, like, would we still call ourselves an evangelical and why? Um, and, you know, one of the things one of the things I just felt so strongly um, that needed to be communicated was that I am not, I am not concerned with, or I am not, what's the word I'm looking for? I am not, I'm not about, I'm just not about trying to resuscitate a dead body. Okay. Mm -hmm. If white evangelicalism in its form in the U S or in the West is dead, then just let it die. Okay, because that's just not Jesus. It's not the church. It's not Christ. It's not. It's not the future. It's not any of that. So I feel like if that's what it is, if that's like a form of faith or a form of Christianity that is not really the church, then just let it disintegrate and die, and let something mm. new be birthed out of it. So I'm not concerned with people's comfort. I'm yeah. not concerned um, with people's fragility. I am concerned with people's freedom. It's great. Um, it, it just means it comes at a, a cost because what I do want to do, what I do want is to be a good student of scripture and a pastoral presence. So mm-hmm. I'm trying to build that bridge and I'm trying, <laughs> I'm trying to help people understand whether it's like in the pulpit or um, in a worship service or, you know, on the street with some of our youth, you know, I'm like, I'm trying to yeah. help them understand, like, actually, Jesus does care about justice. Actually, Jesus does yeah. care about that. You know, this is not the church. These things over here that you see around you, they're just like some kind of some form of faith and religion that I don't even understand. doesn't look anything like what I see in the Bible. Um, just ignore them. Okay. Let's focus on Jesus. And I try to mm-hmm. help them see Jesus in the scriptures. Like, do you want to just study Jesus with me for four weeks in the scriptures? I swear, just close your eyes to everything else that's happening around you. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a bad witness, you know? Um, but I think mm-hmm. in those spaces, I know it's just so sad. I'm like, yeah, you're right. What you see is gross. I know it's, I'm gross. Yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, and, and to spell out some of the grossness, particularly for those of us, um, not in that geographical context, just South of Canada and North of Mexico, uh, 81% of white evangelicals voted for Trump. And that's why they're asking you the question as a woman of color. Um, how do you? Yes. Would you consider? I said, yes, I so, so evangelica. That's what I said. I said, soy evangelica. Um, uh, because that term in Spanish means something totally different. It's not a political term that has been used to um, commodify and kind of, you know, anyway. So yes. Um, the individualism, the capitalism, the narcissism that is the yeah. Western church in all of its forms in every country in the world, because it exists in every country. It's yes, been exported right. everywhere. It's been exported right. everywhere. Um, that thing is not actually what Jesus called us to. And so mm. um, I think what I have tried to do is to help people see the God of scripture, period. Like, let's mm. look at these passages. Let's look at these. And then let's look at what the church globally and what the church in its smaller, not mega, not fancy, not televised, (laughs) not virtual ways, in the ways that actually it is 
reflecting God's kingdom yeah. in, in not only transformational ways, but in ways that are, is bringing deliverance to communities all around the world. Yeah. So if we can keep our eyes off of whatever we think is church right now and turn our eyes towards what God is really doing in, um, in, in revival, in deliverance, in freedom, in, in justice around the world through the church, then maybe we would feel more encouraged um, that, that there is actually something happening. So when we look out and we think it's just a big old desert, you can see that there, if you look far enough outside of your own country's borders, you know, or into your, into the cities where you're not probably spending time, you'll see that there's actually miraculous things happening. Come on. Um, so I, that's what I'm trying to do. You know, if they kick me out, they do. If they, if they call me a Marxist, cause they do, that's fine. Um, if they, if they ask the like, Marxist this week, so. you know, if yeah, they that's say, right. like I've had people say like, <laughs> you know, I just, there was a woman in the pulpit that referred to herself as a pastor. And I'm like, yeah, I didn't refer to myself as a pastor. I am a I pastor. Am a pastor. <laughs> right. um, and if that offenses and that offends your sensibilities, then, you know, then you're not going to hear anything I have to say, but I'm yeah. also convinced that that places that are a lot of places that I have gone to, or that I do go, 80 to 90% of the people there are so drenched in their idolatry that they're not going to experience freedom. Wow. They're just it's too deep for them. They, yeah. They're holding on too tight to the things they want. But within that community, if even, I feel like it's like, if even 10%, if even 10%, you know, God, yeah. will you save them? You know, like, so I, I right. go because I, I think there are people, folks of color in those spaces, mm-hmm. young Christians in those spaces, people who have experienced oppression in those spaces are like, yes, finally someone said it out loud. Um, yeah. And so I'm going until the Lord tells me to stop going. Yeah. Sandra, I'm so glad that you go. And I can't wait um, to just give you permission to walk us around um, in this, this passage uh, just to spell out one of the things I hear you saying that might be important to name for some, that uh, this bridge building that you're talking about isn't a bridge between some people's vulnerability and other people's fragility, but it's a bridge to freedom. Yeah. Not a bridge in between those things, as if, oh, how are we going to balance the, 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 the fragile with the vulnerable? It's like, no, no, <laughs> like it's it's a bridge to something freedom and that's what we've got to get on with yeah that's good Sandra w- would you walk us through um some of this passage uh and how it turns our world upside down oh Amos brother Amos um so first of all I'd like to say that this is now my 15th year of um of having an affair with the book of Amos, as my husband says. Um, I, I, I love the book of Amos because it is poetic. So let me yeah. say this before I, I used to scare my college students when I would do inductive buddy, Bible study through the book of Amos because they would feel like there was too much emotion or passion coming from me when it's inductive Bible study. And I would start by giving them a one sheet paper, like a one pager that said, this is the nature of Hebrew poetry given to me by the Old Testament chair of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, okay? So I would tell them, like, if you hear some emotion coming from me, you know, it's because poetic literature and prophetic literature is meant to not only instruct you, it's meant to actually invoke and provoke you emotionally. 
Mm-hmm. It's poetry. You know, that's what it's supposed to do. And sadly, we're not reading it It's in its original form because we're missing all of right. the, the rhyme and kind of the song of it in, in Hebrew. But the, the prophet Amos, um, what I love about this is, is just the nature of the book itself. As a musician, as a creative, as I mean, I just love the way it's written and the way that it's, it comes to us as this song that Amos is singing to us, uh, that the Lord is singing to us through Amos. And Amos is singing this constantly to us, seek God and live, turn to God, return to God. And so, whereas sometimes people feel like, oh man, the prophets, you know, they're so like intense and like angry. Actually, they're not angry at all. Hmm. They're, or I should say, they're not just angry for the sake of being angry at all. What they're trying to do is they're trying to call you to something. So the book of Amos has all these calls, a call to repentance, a call to freedom, a call to love lament, a call to change, a call to worship, you know, a call to hope. All those calls are there in the book of Amos. And over and over again, Amos is singing to you, return to God, return to God, return to God. And he's doing so to an entire people group because from, you know, what we know from scripture is that God's people, like still today, we're never turning towards God. We're always turning away towards God, towards our own selfishness, towards our own idols, towards our own narcissism, towards our own greed, Um, it's just me, me, me all the time. And so God is just trying to call his people back. So I want to share something that um, one of my friends who's at Stateville prison shared with me when we were studying the book of Amos. (laughs) He thought I was a little intense. So he's like, I just want to tell you, Pastor Sandra, I want to tell you that like, I don't know if he was correcting me or informing me, but I'm just going to say, I think he thought it was like, let me just tone you down a little bit. Um, He's like, you know, when I hear the, when I hear Amos's voice, I hear the voice of my grandmother. I hear the voice of my mama. I hear the voice of my abuela. When I used to want to go out in the streets and my mom was like, don't go out there. There's nothing good for you out there. Because where we live was messed up. There was nothing for me out there. But I just wanted to go out there because my friends were, and my abuela would be, mijo, no, no salgas. No, don't go out there. And so they were always trying to like get me to come to return home, to stay safe, to make the right decision. And I didn't. So I'm here, you know? Hmm maximum to life, you know? And I hear Amos's voice like that, mm, like the wow. voice of my, and it changed everything for me. I was like, oh, Amos is not just yelling at them. Right. Amos is like an abuela. She's, he's like a mama wow. who's trying to tell the little guys that, that she raised, I just need you to stay inside. Okay. Mm-hmm. There's nothing good for you out there. I just need you to come back to me. And so I have this, like, when he said that, I had this image of, like, a really round, comfortable abuela, mama, that just took all the little babies into her arms, you know, (laughs) and and wanted to keep them from doing the things that would make them a statistic. Hmm. It made me, when you're saying that, it made me think of um, Jesus's analogy of, um, him lamenting over Jerusalem yeah, and the right. chicks go running and, but he had just desired to gather the chicks, right? Like a hen gathers the chick. That's what I hear as you're saying that that's really powerful. Yeah. I've never heard you changing how I'm hearing Micah. I mean, uh, Amos, I'm saying Micah. Well, Amos. yeah. Thanks to the brothers. Um, yeah. This is really yeah, powerful. So it, it, um, it, it changed the tone of the way that I heard Amos, and it actually changed the way that, because I, I will still read it sometimes in the Hebrew just for the poetry, and it yeah. changed the way I felt it. It The song had a different, um, 
it had a diff- different music behind it. I don't know if that makes sense. A different soundtrack, you know? Mm. Um, and then another brother says, you know, you know, I just, I notice that Amos is a, is a, um, it says that he's a, a, he's tending, you know, tending the, uh, the, the trees, you know, what is the word yeah. I'm looking for? Sorry. He's, he's a, not a shepherd. He's a, He's like tending to the trees. Sorry, guys. I'm so tired. So Amos is tending to the trees and he's like, he's just, he's a care caretaker. Mm-hmm. He's a caretaker. And so he's going to pay attention and he's, he's like, got to have that patience to go out there and take care of those trees and, and do the thing. And, and it's a desert and those trees are hot. You know, he's going on and on. I don't even know what he's imagining about this desert, which clearly he's probably, he's not been in, you know, like, but he's telling me all this thing about Amos being a caretaker. And so Amos's heart is just to like, man, he just wants to care for the people of God. And again, I was like, wow, I never thought of it that way. And so um, I think when I read Amos, the calls of Amos, and especially the calls in Amos 4 and 5, what I read is, is a song from the Lord to his people saying, I just want you to come back to me. I just want you to return to me. I just want you to love me. Can you love me by loving my people and my creation? Can you love me by loving your neighbor? Can you love me by being people of justice? Can you love me by seeking good and hating evil? Because Mm. I hate evil. So if you love me, you will hate evil. And so he's calling people back to, to, to God's self. And I'm like, man, this is the heart of God. Hmm. That we would be people that would love justice and seek good. Yeah. And that we would return to God. And yeah. and I think that is that is the tone, that is the invitation that Amos makes to us in, in Amos 4 and 5. So when we hear like the Lord, um, when we hear the Lord say through Amos, I I can't stand it when you guys come together and sing. I can't stand it when you fill those chairs in those churches. I can't stand it when you just dress up and act like, I can't stand. It's not that the Lord doesn't love us. It's that it, we're so far. We're so lost. We're so deep in our idolatry that we can't even see God for who God is anymore. Yeah. And we play like we know God while all along we participate in and are complicit in and actively pursue injustice for the sake of our own comfort, for the sake of our own greed. And I hear this call from God that tells us, I don't want you to think you are worshiping me because someday, as Jesus says, you will call me Lord. And I will say, I don't know you. Yeah. I don't know who you are. Mm. And so I think it's God's love, God's mercy, God's loving kindness. Like in the book of Ruth, his said, his loving kindness. It's God's love that pursues us. Um, yeah. And I think that's what the book of Amos is about. It's like, I'm trying to tell you guys. I'm trying to tell you guys. I'm trying to tell you guys. Um, and the people are just ignoring. And we are just ignoring. So I, I, I think that's what I have in my heart to share today about mm. th- this book. It's like, I hear Amos not screaming, but singing 
um, not yelling, but wailing. That's, that's incredible, Sandra. Uh, I mean, I love listening to you preach. I really do. Like, th- this is so powerful. I'm I'm aware this week, other than being called a Marxist, I was also called anti-American, and I tried to explain. Uh, I'm not anti-American. I'm just not American. There's a, there's a difference, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> um, uh, but I also had um, a, a certain uh, celebrity worship leader um, do a story on their Instagram correcting the use of um, uh, Amos uh, what, uh, tw- 21 to, um, 25 to do with the context of Black Lives Matter. And their pushback was, this is against not any old injustice, but particular injustices. And you need to read the whole book of Amos to understand that this is particular injustices. This has got to do, I oh, don't no, 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 wait yes, for it. Genocide. Yes. Genocide, yeah. incarceration yeah. of folks that are not guilty, Stealing from the poor, you know, <laughs> capitalism. I mean, I don't know. This is, yes, exactly. Every single yeah. <laughs> rape, murder, like every single injustice in our countries, not just the U.S., but in all of our countries. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Is captured in Amos 1 through 3. And and so clearly Amos, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut. I'm just like, yes, in 1 through 3, Amos is so, so crafty, so artistic, so creative, yes. so poetic, that he's, like, starting with the farthest neighbor, like, those people over there, look what they do. They like He knows how to like, work a crowd. And then he just comes right back into the middle and says, and you, yeah. you are my people. You're supposed to, those people don't even know me, but you're my people. And you're supposed to be, and yes, every single injustice that we've experienced is covered. Yeah. And just, and just poverty, you know, like, just yeah. a, a lack of concern and an apathy for those who are poor is an injustice. Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, he's this um, uh, guerrilla poet that wins the crowd over by having a go at who they love to hate. And everybody's like, you can imagine them like, yeah, those guys suck. Yeah, yeah, go after them. Yeah, yeah. And then he turns it on them and goes, and you. And everybody's like, oh, oh, whoa, what just happened? uh, I, I just lost my shout. Like that, this isn't fun anymore. This isn't, um, Sandra, where, where would you go when people are wanting to dissect the text in such ways that says, if it's not explicitly slavery and if it's, uh, uh, not explicitly stealing from the poor, um, to which I would say, uh, read Michelle Alexander, like just go read the new Jim Crow and come back and talk to us like are these the issues that Black Lives Matter are actually confronting or not? Um, but where would you go when there are people listening to this who have shared that post and have had um, uh, people that they've prayed with push back and go, oh, um, you've signed up to a political agenda. Um, uh, you've, you've drunk the Kool-Aid. Uh, how would you equip people in the book of Amos to uh, respond to that kind of pushback? I mean, that's why I think context is so important because, you know, you do need to have a real good Bible dictionary and a real good commentary, like a set of good commentaries to understand all that's happening in this book because it's places and names and peoples and, and things that you're like, and you have done the, and you have, when you're like, what does that mean? And then when you go to look it up, you're like, oh, that's genocide. That's what that is. That's like native American indigenous genocide. Okay. 
Um, you and 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 as far as like the Black Lives Matter and um, and police brutality and all those things, I mean, it's you deny justice in the courts. You deny justice in your in the criminal in the criminal justice. You're denying justice by who has access to lawyers, by who by the the sentences and the um, that are given to some over others, by the policies that we create around what's a major crime or a felony. I mean, all those things are. I'm pretty sure I'm, I have not come across an injustice that is not in the book of Amos. But even if you didn't want it to be in the book of Amos, you could just start a Genesis and work your way all the way through Revelation. And I'm sure you're going to find one of those in there. You know? <laughs> right. Um, and, 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 so, and, and part of it also is I think I think Christians that are saying things like that, frankly, they're just. Um, OK, let me be careful. Um, I think it's very important for us to understand that all God's all truth is God's truth. Mm-hmm. So we use philosophy, all forms of philosophy to develop Western white systematic theology, mm-hmm. all kinds that comes from Greece and all sorts of Western. I mean, we were like mm-hmm. rooted in German. We had to learn German to study theology. German because clearly French, yeah. right. German French, and French. Yeah. So right. they're, they're French philosophers and, and German thought and what, I mean, that's rooted in a particular context. So right. I think what's happening now is we're trying to say, can we just involve sociology and mm-hmm. forms of philosophy and anthropology and history in our study of scripture. I'd be like, no, you can't do that. It's the Bible only. And it's like, okay, well then let me throw out all my systematic theology textbooks and all my New Testament theology textbooks because pretty sure that a lot of philosophy went into understanding what is logical about our theology. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think um, part of that is helping people understand that we must be informed thoughtful students of scripture, which requires that we exegete not only the passage, but that we exegete culture as well. Mm. Both matter. So that's what I would say. I would say, well, okay, so you tell me, for example, that, you know, we all have sin and and that that we're all turned away from God, you know, which I agree. We as people are turned away from God and we're also good, but we're turned away. This will be like our ways, you know? Um, but then the question is, how does that sin manifest itself structurally in our society? Uh-huh. Not just that I don't like you because you come from a certain family, but we actually have woven it into our structures. So I would say that um, I would introduce them to to their own philosophers yeah, and say, these are the <laughs> things that have informed your understanding of scripture. These are the cultural values you have. And can we understand, can we help you have a little bit more cultural intelligence and kind of, you know emotional intelligence around how you understand scripture. But I do think it's because the bottom line is this. Um, the people that are saying those things are people in power for whom the way we understand scripture works for them. Mm. And the way that we apply scripture to our sociocultural context, it, it works for them. Right. And even though, you know, 89% of the global church is not in the West, we're still trying to tell everybody else what to think and believe. And we're right, still yeah. policing their theology. Right, yeah. Right. Yeah, I call it uh, theological referees, right? Where, uh, uh, in fact, I heard somebody recently, I couldn't believe, um, but they, they described themselves 
as an umpire, right? Um, it, and so, like, I, I, I'm neutral and I'm objective. I just, I'm, a, I'm an umpire and I just call it as I see it, right? So they imagine themselves as somehow outside of culture and everybody else is in. So, and I was like, that actually fits perfectly with what I call theological refereeing, where you imagine somehow that you're not participating in culture shaped by a context, shaped by people, socialized in the world, right? And so you can tell everybody else who's inbounds and who's out of bounds. Um, and think that you just have a, a clear <coughs> normative, you know, interpretation on all things Christian and scripture and Jesus, right? And yeah. it's just, it just doesn't work that way. But when when your whole world's uh, and the status quo works for the way that you live, you know, it's easy, I guess, to just re-ascribe those things over and over again. Yeah. And in, in, go ahead. Sorry, Sandra, after you. In, in, the, in the next worship, in the first three chapters, I just explore culture and worship. And in that book, I talk about how that's what we call normal worship. So we have normal worship right, and then right. we have like got black gospel worship and right. international global worship and right, whatever right. Like normal worship. What we right. really mean is like those six chords that were written by those, you know, <laughs> by those musicians at those three mega churches on those right. three continents, you know, and we can name right. them, we all know who they are and they spit out their formulas and we all sing their songs and we learn how to play those six chords and we're all doing normal worship. And everything outside of that is hyphenated, like our hyphenated right. realities. And so, and in the in still evangelical, I wrote I what I wrote there was really I'm I'm O negative. I don't know what blood type you guys are, but I'm O negative, which means I'm the universal donor. It means everybody needs me, and I can't receive from anybody but people like me. And mm. so, I really believe that white theologians and white Christians and white Christian leaders see themselves, particularly white males, see themselves as the universal donor. Right. Mm. Their theology is for everybody. Their worship right. is for everybody. Their Christian practices are for everybody. They save everybody's lives, but they can only learn from people just like them. Right. Mm. Yeah, that's and, a great analogy. And there we have it. Then we have everybody else is hyphenated. So if that's already been normalized in our culture, and I tell people, look at your bookshelf. Like, turn around, and look at your bookshelf. Right. If you, yeah. 91% of the books that are written up there are probably by white men. Yeah. They came from three different countries or four different countries, and they all are affluent. If you want to talk about class, they're all affluent, overeducated, completely removed from the context of scripture, and they're telling us what to believe about the Bible. Right. Mm. Right. So, so we've nor- we've normalized this. Right. Yeah, totally. Sandra, I've just pulled out my gold plasma partner card, and apparently I'm A negative according to the back of it. So. Okay. <laughs> Um, in terms of Drew's, <laughs> um, in terms of Drew's analogy, I think the interesting thing, if you've got like a, a football umpire, um, that if it's my dad's family, the football umpire comes in and they're playing Gaelic football, um, and if it's uh, maybe your context, Sandra, um, they're they're playing the world game football. Yeah, um, football, the real uh, football. That, that, that's right. That uh, um, other people refer to as soccer, or in Australia, playing Aussie rules football. And the problem with umpires is like, we're not even playing by your rules and you know nothing of our context or the game that we're playing because we're not interested in a game that works in such a way where the people who win, win at the cost of others. That's not our game. That, that's right. not the game we signed up to play. Um, right. And a, a game that constantly, or I mean, our dear friend Lisa um, uses the analogy of, of trying to play on a field that is slanted in the direction of one team. So the ball always runs down into the goals for some people. And they're like, yeah, but we're playing by the same rules. It's, I wonder if we're even 
playing the same game. And on right. that, I wonder if that's part of um, the context of what uh, Amos is doing in, in terms of um, that place called Bethel. And this is what I immediately thought about without <laughs> any irony is um, all you have to do is change a few names in Amos chapter 7 and you go then and you insert a new name, uh, the priest of Bethel. As Lisa would say, hello, somebody. <laughs> like, <laughs> a priest of Beth Bethel sent uh, to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. The land cannot bear his words. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. Like, you couldn't write a better critique right in there from the voice of those who are saying, if you're raising objections um, to theologies that are not only neutral in terms of these injustice, um, not only blind to the injustice, but actually chaplains of them, cheerleaders for them, providing the soundtrack, the backing track for Trump's white supremacy. Um, uh, during a pandemic where 163,000 Americans have died, that's, right. that's something like... Most of them brown and black. Right. And, and like... like that's over 50 9-11s, right? Like, right. why can't people draw the connection that um, uh, this is homicidal stupidity when it comes to a pandemic and encouraging people not to wear masks and sing songs in the very sites where people are crying out for justice and you're singing over the voices of those who are crying out for God to move even if they don't know God's name, it's like, come on, it doesn't take, this is not, you don't need a PhD in theology to connect the dots here. I mean, this is also brought to you by the same people that like have whole websites to show their $3,000 sneakers while they preach. So I don't even know what to do about that. <laughs> made, in a, made in a foreign country where some kid made 12 cents an hour, you know? I mean, right. the whole right, thing yeah. is messed up. I mean, it really is messed up. It's yeah. like, I, I, I'm looking at those sneakers and preachers, whatever that website is. I'm like, you guys are really, like, people are following this. And I'm like, are you yeah. insane? Are you yes. freaking insane? These yeah. are people that have mega churches spitting out these entire quote unquote worship movements. And I'm yeah. like, God is not in that song. Yeah. Okay. He's not in that song. Yeah. Right. You can't, I mean, sorry. Right. So I'm like, I can't sing that song. I'm sorry. I can't yeah. sing that song. I can't follow right. that movement. Because the yeah. person that is discipling the worship team in that movement is showing, like, look at my new eight hundred dollars. Look at my new three thousand. I'm just like, no, I'm yeah. sorry. I mean, yeah. I know uh, the topic is not finances, but that's for another day. But I'm just like, that is literally Amos. You right. just got a pair of shoes and exploited the poor for your sandals, and now you're that's, come on. on Instagram. Like right. literally, like exploiting the poor. So while singing, I'm no longer a slave to fear. Yes. But unfortunately, mm -hmm. that's not true for the person who made your shoes. Yeah, it's right. bad. It's bad, y'all. It's bad. And that's why I'm like, I just, I'm so encouraged by what's happening outside of that space. Yeah. Like I'm so encouraged by normal everyday churches and communities and places on the West side of Chicago where people are like, because anything good comes on the West side of Chicago. And I'm like, Actually, the best stuff is coming out of the west side of Chicago because we're not trapped yeah. by those things you guys are trapped by. And we're actually on our faces in front of the living God. Yes. And we're doing the things because we hear the cries of our neighbors because we live right next to them. And they're dying, yo. Right. Yeah. 
And Sandra, I think this is so beautiful how you've lifted up the the, the context and are putting that back. Because um, the more you dig into the context of where people are hurting, the more you understand the context of who Amos is speaking to. And I loved how you framed it with um, your mate from uh, Behind Bars who was talking about his grandmother's loving call to, to get back away from the danger. That That's so powerful. But to name for people that these dangers aren't new. I mean, Amos is going to the place where two centuries before, Solomon builds a temple to the God who hears the cries of slaves and uses slave labour. So the complexities of a people um, uh, using the God who hears the cries of slaves um, to build empire is nothing new to these scriptures. And God's loving response is to send the poets, is to send the prophets, is, is to invite them lovingly away from these places um, uh, so it doesn't end in, in misery. And, I mean, this is, this is Amos. He, he is bringing Sinai to Bethel and saying, uh, uh, you know the Decalogue? You know how 70% of it is all about how we treat others? That's because that's what the God we worship is on about, like actually cr- creating places where it can look different to the different nations. Hear that word of the Lord. And I, I, I love even the example, Sandra, of um, speaking to you, the voices you lift up, the voices you're learning from are in the very places that so often the church prays to get away from instead of go and learn from. That's beautiful. I, I think it's a blessing to have a community of people that are not like you and don't have your experience um, Mm. and some that do share your experience so that you can deepen your understanding of this faith journey that we're on. I have to tell you, like, I, I'm so thankful for my brothers who see things that I don't see. I'm so thankful for my um, immigrant sisters who have experienced things. I know nothing. I literally know nothing of. And the mothers in my community and fathers who have raised their children in the context of violence, you know, like violence and, 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 um, and in a community where people have ignored and, um, and disenfranchised us, you know, and, uh, and to hear their songs and to hear their prayers and to note what they're seeing in scripture. Mm -hmm. It reminds me that God is present, even though it feels like things are just falling apart that even though every day we're screaming like how long how long um i hear the voices of the abuelas and the the mamas who are like oh they're looking at me like child you don't even know (laughs) know, you're you're tired are you tired right now are you tired because you know they've gone through some stuff i haven't gone through and yet they champion me and they pray for me. Like on Saturday mornings, the ladies get together. I'm like, oh, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to white speak to my people. I don't even know. They're like praying for me and laying hands on me and sending me. And, uh, and I'm reminded that, you know, because where they stand, you know, when the people, when the people who were the oppressed, when the people who were those who had experienced their families 
family lost through genocide, when they heard Amos's words, they didn't hear Amos's words as judgment. They heard Amos's words as hope. There is a God who sees us. And even though we are this echables, even though we're disposable in this country or in this space, even though our lives do not matter, and we're not even human, we're treated less than dogs. Our children are treated more poorly than pets are in this country. That's right. God sees us and he's sending his people for us. And I think that Amos becomes, whereas we, those who have privilege, because we do, socioeconomically and educationally, and because we have citizenship in this country, um, or in your own country, you know, um, we hear it as a call to wake up, and they hear it as a reminder that God is going to make all things new. Mm. And that's why we need them. Because where we get angry and frustrated and overwhelmed by the darkness in the world, the people who are most impacted socioeconomically and racially and experientially, they are the ones who in turn say to us, don't give up hope. Mm. Keep raising your voice. Andale, mija. Hágalo. God is there with you. I don't know what I do without them, honestly. I probably yeah. pack up my I probably pack up my bags and leave the church. It does take. I'm reflecting, Sandra, as you share so powerfully. Um, last weekend, I did a wedding for a friend who doesn't have permanent citizenship. In fact, he finished fourth in his weight division. Uh, for bodybuilding in Australia, but he can't represent Australia internationally because he hasn't been given citizenship. Uh, Because of his baptism um, since coming here and uh, just through um, being loved on by people who uh, were seeking to advocate alongside him, um, he kept asking about why and um, uh, became a Christian because of uh, the people who loved him uh, the, the way that they had. And I had a pastor friend who had to leave this beautiful wedding um, surrounded by these people who are in this situation of such vulnerability to go and do a retreat with other pastors. And I felt so sad for them, like actually sad for them, not, not him, not his situation of will they have to leave the country um, uh Uh, facing um, deportation, but sad for the pastor who had to leave the party of these people who were experiencing such real goodness. Like this is the closest to the kingdom I've been in such a long time. And they had to leave to go and spend time with other pastors. (laughs) And I was like, that's hell right there. To to leave the very places where Jesus is found partying to to go and network with other pastors. Yeah, I know that. I know it's called Christian conferencing. I, I got that one. You know, <laughs> that's why on Sundays those... I'm like, I will take a red eye on Saturday night to be in service on Sunday to get a hug from the mamas because I am not missing church. <laughs> yeah, 
um, don't send me back out there if, if I'm not going to be recovered. Um, it's, it's awful. It is, it is hell. It is awful. <laughs> Sandra, for, for those who are experiencing that particular hell of having no proximity to the places where God is found working, but instead um, are constantly swimming in the waters of middle-class niceness that is immune and um, hardness of heart and, and deafness towards the, the cries of those who are hurting is not just natural but normal. What, how would you pass them? How do you invite them to that bridge that goes towards freedom? What, what would you invite them into? There are always people around us who are not only emotionally but socially vulnerable. There isn't a setting I can think of where there aren't the elderly, children or, or adults with uh, disabilities, um, foster children. I mean, you. I mean, even if your space is homogeneous, even if you live in a town of 500 people in rural Iowa, there's always going to be someone who's there who is being socially outcast for some reason. Mm-hmm. And I think that we open our hearts to those who are on the margins, whatever that margin is, because that's where we would find Jesus. So I would say, you know what, just very practically, like look around your area and see if there's a, if there's a facility where the elderly are living, nobody visits them. Y'all nobody visits them Yeah. just to be with them and read books with them and see what Jesus does in your heart. I mean, um, go through a process of, of um, certifying yourself to be a safe family, like a short-term foster family or a foster family, because I'm telling you Mm. that will change your life. I say that as a foster mother who's just recently adopted my son. Like it is a expletive cussing. Like it is a really bad life that some kids have to live. Yeah. And just to have someone spend time with them and remind them that Jesus is there and in their humanity. Become a big brother or big sister in a community center near you. I mean, mm. I don't think, I do think there are systemic things that we need to change. But I, I don't know that all of us are called to move from the location we're in. Mm. And so if you're a student in a certain location or you're a pastor in a certain location and you can't move to be proximate, to folks like that, I would say, open your eyes and look who's around you. I'm going to tell you in the U S there are immigrants everywhere. Y'all Yep, that's right. from Southeast Asia, refugees from the middle East, from Northern Africa, from all over Latin America they're there, they're just hidden. And I would, I would think that's true in many, many of our spaces and places. But I I would say, instead of being fixed on like, you know, like the thing that's popular right now is anti-trafficking. So I'm going to go and do the anti-trafficking thing. I would say, open your eyes and ask the Holy Spirit to tell you who in my space is vulnerable right now, who is marginalized in my space, and just take a step forward. And if you take a step forward from there, I bet you the, that you will begin a path towards opening your heart. Wow. And you'll find that your heart actually doesn't have, it's not, it's not a scarcity mentality with your heart. Jesus will open up your heart. You may not be able to give the same time around advocacy for every issue or kind of be present for every people group or every, you know, but you can open your heart and take a step forward um, and then see where that leads you. And then I would ask the question about the communities you belong to. Are there communities 
Like, is your church already in relationship with, or your community already in relationship with another community that is experiencing oppression and justice and marginalization? And how can you deepen that partnership? So it's mm. not just the tokenism, experience of tokenism, but an actual deep partnership. But, you know, there are people that are hurting all around us. Um, their families. I mean, I know people that are white who've had, who've had terrible, really scarring, toxic experiences in their family and in their lifetime. And to pay attention and to care for and to extend yourself towards those who are hurting, that will always take you one step deeper. Amen. And of course you can read books, but I'm just, I think people are trying to read their way into justice right now. I just, right. as an author, as an author, I say that like read the books, but that's not justice. Reading books is not justice. It's just like a tool on your way to the justice and towards the compassion. Yeah. Yeah, I just had that same conversation um, just a couple of days ago, just saying, yes, read the books, but like, if you're not actually living it and actually embodying, and I mean, I even think about what you were just saying in terms of like some of, I mean, you think about communities, suburban middle-class communities where people just drive in into their garage and they don't interact with their neighbors or anything like that, like get out and actually connect. I mean, how you, you can't see the suffering and the pain in your community if you're so disconnected from people around you, right? Um, You have to share stories and get proximates um, and be invested in others. And I think that those are ways, just different ways of being, even in their own spaces, like you're saying, that can open people up to see the hurt and pain that exists already all around them, right? Um, And I think that, um, yeah, I, I, I also agree that Yes, we do need to do some significant things around geography and race do it. and power yes, dynamics, do it. right? Yeah. But yeah, yeah. but there is, as you said, vulnerability already expressed deeply in people's own communities all around them. And and, and if they can't see that, then they're not even prepared. Their hearts are already going to be hardened to enter into other communities um, that are even maybe... Yeah, yeah and... and the, And the thing is, it's really important because the thing is we're whole beings, which means we cannot think our way into a movement of justice. We have to experience it with our whole being. And so I think if you're reading the books about the history of Native African-American, Latin American, you know, Latino folks in the U.S. and learning about the structures and, you know, the inequity and education and you're doing all that and you're tutoring or adjacent to a child who's experiencing some kind of vulnerability in your community, or you notice that there's a teenager who is in a home where there's domestic abuse, or you're you're taking calls on a hotline where people are are close to suicide, any of those things, coupled with looking at structures and systems and in prayer and alongside, and all that's just going to, it's going to do something in your body where it just opens you up, you know? Yeah. Um, but if all you ever do is just read about history and you have no people connection to people, to any kind of vulnerability. So I would say, yes, definitely. Like if you can be cross-cultural do it, but I know the reality is I've been driving around our country a lot this year because there's no, you know, not a lot of flights happening. And there's just like, some places are like real homogeneous, you know, like, like Mm -hmm. everyone's the same for like miles and miles and miles. Um, and it's, you don't, you don't want the only three Latinos in the county to be like attacked by all the white people. Like, can we get to know you? Um, (laughs) The one black kid at school, like all of a sudden he has 17 new friends, you know? So I think the, what we need to do is, is think creatively about how do we engage our minds? 
How do we engage our hearts and how do we practice a discipline that like, it's kind of like yoga. It's like you stretch and you stretch and you stretch until you, you actually can get to where you need to go. And I think that proximity to those who are vulnerable because domestic violence is real in the suburbs and then with the wealthy. That's right. That's right. And poverty and, and uh, substance abuse affects people of every race and ethnicity. Okay. Um, And people are being trafficked in the most, fancy of places these days right so there's just stuff around us and we need to i really believe that is the work of the holy spirit to say open our eyes so that we can see and then give me the courage to enter into any journey of compassion Mm -hmm. and justice and then trust that god will take us i didn't like become who i am today because i just like picked it it was the journey of that's right opening myself years and years and years that's right yeah yeah so yeah i think we got to do both of it we we and 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 because of twitter and and you know instagram we can raise our voices on all the things right now so raise your voices Mm. but don't think that just because you tweet and you post and you repost the picture you're actually making a difference in the world like yeah that's a part of it not the whole thing yeah and you're still having your fancy coffee and buying your oppressive shoes and you know, doing your thing and singing your songs and all the while Amos yeah. is like, no, that's not, that's not it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and unfortunately for Gen Z or Z, as you'd say in your part of the world, that um, often activism is reduced to um, uh, the online stuff and showing up recently as if there's nothing to learn from those who have spent time in jail, who, who have been uh, uh, arrested more times than years they've been alive, um, who have... Uh, lived in the places and spent time and learned in such ways that the communities that they're received as their own, um, e- even though it's it's not where they grew up, um, th- that has to um, uh, be modelled in such ways that the recently more woke than thou, wanting to forget who they were five minutes ago, um, right. can actually deepen in this movement, be sustainable, where we can actually um, a champion and celebrate um, those uh, great aunties and uncles in the movement who um, have so much to teach us instead of thinking just because I've got this number of followers on a certain platform um, that uh, I know everything and um, I'm the leader now. And Sandra, I almost think um, with what um, Drew and you were just saying, uh, it's like the books and the podcasts, they're like um, the app that gives you the map on on your phone. Um, and if if you haven't actually travelled to those places, if you don't know what street view looks like with your own eyes in those places, uh, you, you might be able to have a great discussion about geography, but if you've never been there, um, it, like what use of it? And vice versa, if, if you are there but you don't have a sense of the lay of the land, the, the, the scholar and the streets have to come together. Got to come together. Um, it's yeah. Peter Moran's vision of um, uh, tables where um, uh, we're working together, uh, we're in the factory and the farm together, and we're listening together as um, the, the worker and the person without work sits down and shares a meal together. Oh, we just need more of that Catholic worker vision of um, we're in this together and we need our scholars such as yourself, such as Drew, um, uh, alongside uh, those who don't have access and can't afford for a variety of reasons, um, seminary. Right. 
or travel. Like I always love when people are like, yeah. how did you, how did you grow in your understanding of racial and cultural diversity and what, how to make it different? <laughs> right, well, it just get on a plane, travel. And I'm just like, none of the kids in my community are going to get on a plane and travel. And travel. Yeah. Right. Right. So, yeah, right. Um, so sorry. No. Um, and I think, it, it, it just, again, it's not that we should be ashamed because I'm on a plane a lot where I was a lot before COVID. Mm. So it's not that we should be ashamed of where God has put us. It's that we should think creatively for, we, sh- we should understand our context and then think creatively for those that we're leading. What would it look like for them? What is the mother of a single mother of children who doesn't have doc, who doesn't have documentation in this country? What is, yeah. how can she be a person of justice? Right, yes. How can she be a person that uses her voice to make a difference in the world? Yeah. What does that look like for her? And because those people are in our lives and we're asking those questions instead of like, well, everyone's a college student who has at least a bachelor's degree who can just purchase these books on Amazon. And then they're just going to become these great, you know, justice advocates. And, and, and again, they're still going to have their $20 drinks on rooftops and all the other things they're doing. So I think yeah. with, with chasing justice, I think what we're trying to do is to say, we should look at structures and systems. We should understand, um, we should understand our history. We, we, we ought to do the work of knowing, but justice is not about knowing. Justice is a lifestyle. And so mm-hmm. if you're not around anyone who's in need um, socioeconomically and you're not around anyone who's um, racially or culturally different than you and you want to make a difference, awesome. Give away half your salary to those oh, of us that are in proximity to those places so that we can do the work that we're doing in our neighborhoods. And that would be an act of redistribution, which would be an act of justice. And then while you're at it, why don't you advocate for a livable wage in the spaces where we're at so our parents don't have to work three jobs to put food mm. on the table. Like there's so many things you could be doing. Um mm. And it's a lifestyle. It's to say, like, if we're asking the good questions, we're going to ask ourselves, when is too, when is enough enough? You know? Yeah. And I think I'm finding too much these days. It's, it was like the movement of like, you know, it was like the monastic movement where all of us like sell all of our stuff and live in a shack somewhere. And, you know, like don't spend any, I mean, I was a part of it, you know, like we don't spend yeah, any money. That, that, that's, you feel that, bad that's for my, we feel bad for, you know, we feel bad for like buying a fancy pen, you know, we're like, t- I'll tear, <laughs> and then, you know, and then we moved to like the, like, that's not realistic. That's playing poverty. So we're just going to like advocate and raise our voices. And oh, by the way, I had this awesome $200 dinner. Let me show you my picture of it, you know, like every weekend. And I'm like, that's not honoring to the people that you're at. You're at church with people who can't feed their children. And you're taking yeah. a picture of your $200 meal. That is right. offensive. Yeah. Yeah. That is, right. it is a communal offense. It's actually worse go get out of here. You know, like, um, so I just, I think that we're disintegrated and, um, we've all like, you know, I think we've all gone through it. Like we've got through the ups and downs of like, it's, it's, so I think my, what my hope is for chasing justice is to be like, Hey, um, you know, we have to have thoughtful balance mm-hmm. and emptying and process as we're going together. And we do that in community. And so, yeah, I mean, totally. When I met my husband, I was like, we can't buy that. It's like five bucks. You know, like somebody's dying somewhere and they need that. Five. Like, And he was just like, you are insane, woman. You know. <laughs> um, and now I'm like, I didn't get upgraded to first class. What do I do? You know, like, so, it, you know, <laughs> we're all in process. Right, brothers? Oh, we're all in process. Yeah, that's right. Oh, Sandra Drew has um, heard me tell this story a, a number of times. And the reason why I tell it is because, A, it's humbling, and, B, it speaks so much um, to that experience that you're just naming. But um, my dad, who was um, a brother in a monastic order, um, like he, he was a monk in a Catholic order um, uh, prior to migrating 
um, to this land we now call Australia, um, when in my early 20s, I came to my dad and was like, Dad, we're thinking of taking a vow of voluntary poverty. My dad, who grew up in such very real poverty, just looked at me and said, Jared, if it's voluntary, it's not poverty. <laughs> That's good, Dad. That's good. <laughs> and and we all we all need Bernard McKenna's in in our life to just kind of bring um, bring a bit of realism to all of that, right? Well, especially because I'm like a brown person, so I'm like, where are these white yeah. people trying to be poor? I don't understand. Like, yeah, our people right. like, do well, get educated, and get out of the situation. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it, it 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 does have racial um, and sociocultural, you know, placement. Again, context matters, and that's why yeah. it's important to be in community together so we can talk yeah. about all this stuff. Yeah, I um, always. And, sorry, Drew. No, I was just going to say I always. Um, I think because of the communities that have shaped me, I I always feel like torn in two directions around these kind of conversations. Because I mean, I grew up in a black church that was literally trying to get everybody out of the hood and out of poverty and do well and get educated, you know, and, um, and everyone's so proud that I got a PhD and that's just, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then I've also been deeply shaped by Anabaptist communities in the city that have like, you know, emphasized the simplicity and framing, like, you know, what does it mean to think about how we live and how it impacts others? And, um, and, and there's something meaningful about both. And so I try to, I think there's some kind of hybrid that I kind of do, but, but to take both of those communities very seriously um, in terms of what does it mean to help uh, empower and liberate people? And also what does it mean to have ethical integrity in terms of the way that we live in the world as it relates to the yeah. suffering of others, right? And that all of that matters, yeah. And, and that's uh, helped when you live in those diverse communities because, right. Yes. Right. because like when we moved in, we're like, I mean, we could have bought a big old house because my husband makes money. You know, he makes it. So, and I was like, I hate money. I hate you. I hate your money. And he's like, this is awesome. <laughs> like, so I, but I never had it, you know? And then I was like, well, actually, I mean, we could just make more money. And the more money we make, the more we could funnel it to places where we could like build something with people. Right. And so I think um, it didn't mean that we had to have a fancy house and a fancy car. And, a fa- and then my kid the other day, he was like, mama, I want to have this person's house. Their house is nice. Our house is cracks because <laughs> it's an old right. house. So I'm yep. like, yeah, okay. And I can't tell him we can't afford another house because that's just not true. Um, right. I just have to be like, well, that's not the choice we're making, sweetie. That's not the right. choice we're making. Right. Um, so I, I do think it is. I totally hear you, brother. It's like, it's, in, in, it's like trying to find integration um, yeah. because it does matter when you invite your neighbor over to your house. Right. And they literally don't have two dimes to rub together and they're new to this country and they come into your home right and you're like oh don't sit there or don't go there or don't look at that you know like it it just it doesn't work yeah it doesn't work yep and sandra i so appreciate um you being so honest about those tensions i think that's so helpful for um and and that's you know in in the places that solomon built that's why it's so important to have Love affairs with the book written by our beloved brother Amos, right? Like that—that's the—that's the important of the poetry of the prophets, is um, how to navigate um, uh, those tensions in such way that we don't become like the other nations, but we actually like go on this journey out of empire um, uh, and do it together with others, with taking others. others with us. Right. Right. 
Sandra, this has been wonderful. You are a gift. Yeah. Uh, we're so yes. thankful yes. for your work and witness. If people are wanting to go deeper with um, uh, pursuing justice and uh, um, the other work that you're doing, where can people find you? You can find me on Instagram, uh, Sandra Van Opstel, um, and you can find me at ChasingJustice underscore on Instagram. Um, I, I hardly go over to Twitter and Facebook anymore. Um, so that's probably where you can find me the most. Uh, we also have a podcast um, that Kathy Kong and I do together called Chasing Justice. You can find us there. Oh, wow. I think I knew that you guys were doing podcasts together. Oh, I didn't know that either. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's, oh, that's, that's exciting. And I, I'm yeah. about to talk with Kathy um, soon. So that's, that's amazing. Great. Sandra, would you pray for us um, uh, before we let you go? Yeah. I'd love that. <sighs> Holy God, help us to take a deep breath in and a deep breath out every day and remind ourselves that you are Lord and that we are not. Help us to live in your hope, even as we push against evil, even as we seek good, even as we confront injustice, even as we speak up against empire. In all of those things, may we remember that you are holding us and leading us and guiding us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse. Inverse.